Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Julie Arafay, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. The topic for discussion today is debriefing to improve team performance. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Lou Halamik. Dr. Halamik is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford University. He's a graduate of the Creighton University School of Medicine and completed residency and chief residency in pediatrics at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, followed by fellowship in the neonatal perinatal medicine at Stanford University. He is certified by the American Board of Pediatrics in neonatal perinatal medicine and is a fellow in the American Academy of Pediatrics. He has a clinical appointment at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford, where he works in the Level 4 Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and is the Director of Neonatal Resuscitation and the Resus 1 Quality Improvement Program. He is a former co-chair and current special consultant to the National Steering Committee of the Neonatal Resuscitation Program and is a content expert for the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. Finally, he is the founding director of the Center for Advanced Pediatric and Perinatal Education, known as CAPE, where his team creates highly standardized simulated clinical environments and uses these to study important questions that are difficult or impossible to examine in the real clinical environment. I would like to add that I was part of the CAPE team for many years, and I attribute Lou's guidance and mentorship to be responsible for my understanding and application of simulation and obstetrics and any positive influence I have had. Welcome, Lou. Well, thank you, Julie. It's always good to talk with you. Good to see you again, and uh, thanks for that very kind introduction. Let's get started. Um, Let's start with how would you define debriefing. A debriefing is a discussion about a prior series of events uh, led by an individual or a group of people. The person or persons leading a debriefing may or may not have been involved in the event that is being discussed. In a debriefing, the flow of information is multidirectional, meaning it's both between and among the leaders of the debriefing as well as those being debriefed. And a debriefing is different than feedback where In feedback, the flow of information is unidirectional from a leader or an instructor to the people being debriefed or uh, the trainees. So while feedback by definition does not involve any interactive discussion, it can still be an important method for learning and can be incorporated as a component of debriefing. I'd like to quote a manuscript that I wrote with two good friends and colleagues, uh, Mike Sterling from NASA's Johnson Space Center and Bob Cady, a formal naval aviator. Quote, a technical performance debriefing must provide a non-emotional venue to assess team dynamics, communication, individual role performance, leadership, and followership. As such, debriefing should be dispassionate, fact-based, and conducted with the goal of improving individual and team performance. Now, it's very important to understand that there is a difference between a technical performance debriefing, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and that's used to critique human and system performance, 
And another type of debriefing, which is called a critical incident stress debriefing, that type of debriefing is conducted to provide psychological and emotional support to the people being debriefed. All healthcare professionals need to be able to participate in and benefit from regular technical performance debriefings. That is how we identify our weaknesses and develop tactics for avoiding those in the future, as well as understand our strengths and generate plans for repeating those in succeeding clinical encounters. Now, some authors have stated that discussion of patient outcomes should be avoided during a debriefing because of the fact that patient outcome may be poor even in the face of optimal human and system performance. I would argue that this is actually a reality that all of us in healthcare face and need to appreciate. And if you don't discuss the impact of individual and team performance on patient outcome, you're missing the point of clinical debriefing. Always remember that the goal of a technical performance debriefing is not to feel better. It is to be able to perform better, both as individuals and teams when caring for patients. If an individual or team performs poorly during a simulated or real clinical event, I would expect that they would not feel good about that. And I don't know of any high-performing individuals or teams in other industries or in competitive athletics who feel good after a poor performance. Instead, they use that as motivation to get better, which is exactly what we in healthcare should be doing. Of course, this doesn't mean that a technical performance debriefing is conducted in a caustic or disrespectful manner. Rather, just the opposite should be true. Remember these three words, business-like, matter-of-fact, and professional. That's our debriefing mantra at CAPE. We approach every debriefing in the same way, whether the team's performance was exemplary or highly flawed. That strategy has helped me through a number of very challenging debriefings over the past three decades. You know, I think that is one of the key takeaways that a debriefer can learn because in in times when the team does not perform well, if you have that matter-of-fact, business-like, very professional demeanor, whether the outcome or the performance is excellent, but particularly when it's bad or it's less than optimal, it's not that you're going in and now having to try to decide how you're going to debrief this, you know, with your affect. It's the same all the time. And I think that's something that debriefers need to be really aware of. That is what, to me, the value is. Because going into a debriefing where the performance has not been good is stressful for the debriefer because you're constantly thinking, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? And if you have that same affect, that's one thing you do not have to worry about. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Julie. The, the reality is you want these teams to be able to debrief themselves. And they should not be debriefing their performance or grading their performance based on your affect, your facial expression, your verbal or nonverbal communication. They should be thinking about evaluating themselves because that's what they have to do in the real environment. You're not always going to have someone who is quote unquote trained in debriefing present on a 24 seven basis to come in and debrief a team after any kind of event. They have to be able to do this themselves. And so they need to make those judgments themselves 
rather than looking to you like a, you know, like a kindergarten teacher to tell them whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing. Right. Well, debriefing is becoming more standard in hospitals. And several of the hospitals that I've been in lately have debriefing listed as a required activity in their protocols. However, when I talk to the staff, I don't always hear that debriefing is occurring or that it's useful. So what recommendations do you have to build a successful debriefing program? Well, it's great to hear that people are talking about this and, and wanting to do it. That, that's fantastic that there's motivation there. The key is going to be doing it in a productive way for the teams. And so I recommend three important guidelines. First, be effective with your debriefings. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that this is a technical performance debriefing. So what should be focused on are the following four topics. One, the actions of individual team members. Two, how those actions contributed to the overall performance of the team. Three, how team performance influenced patient outcome. And finally, four, developing strategies for first replicating actions that facilitate successful human and system performance. And then second, avoiding those actions that are ineffective or harmful. The second important guideline is be efficient with your debriefings. When you're debriefing real clinical events, it is critical to remember that the people being debriefed have ongoing patient care responsibilities and can't be there for 30 or 60 or minutes or longer. I typically aim to complete a debriefing of a real clinical event in about 10 minutes. And I will literally say, quote, it is now 10 minutes after two, we will start now and we will end by 20 minutes after two, unquote. Start on time and end on time so people know that they can participate in and benefit from your debriefing, but also will be able to get back to their patients and get their work done. And then the, the third important guideline is to maintain absolute confidentiality. There are several steps that we use to make this happen at our institution. The very first thing to do is to work with your risk management department to ensure that you follow all relevant hospital and state guidelines and regulations around confidentiality. Next, make sure that you conduct your debriefings in a secure location, one that's soundproof, people walking by can't overhear what's being discussed, where the doors are shut and the windows are blacked out. I do not recommend debriefing real events using Zoom, Microsoft Teams, or any other similar technology because you can't control what's happening on the opposite end. And if someone's recording that or someone hears something and misunderstands it, you could be setting you and your teams up for unanticipated, unwanted consequences. Don't allow debriefings, excuse me, don't allow recordings of debriefing sessions. You should all be verbal and not recorded. Most of the time, you should limit attendees of those debriefing sessions to those people who actually participated in the event. Now, there are exceptions to that in each institution. Each group is going to have to work that out. But in general, I think you're going to get the most robust discussion when you have people who are actually in that event participating and not worried about what someone who actually wasn't there didn't experience that, didn't have to face that situation, offering commentary about it. We require that attendees formally sign in. That level of formality brings a seriousness, uh, a gravitas to the debriefing. And finally, 
remain, excuse me, remind everyone before the debriefing starts that these sessions are protected from discovery in a court of law, the same manner as a mortality and morbidity conference. Now, the, it's important to state that the purpose of this step is not to hide information from patients or their families, but actually to promote free discussion by everyone who's in attendance. You want people to feel free to state what they think they saw when they saw it and what they think they heard when they heard it. And that's how you're going to get at what actually happened during that event and be able to truly identify the real strengths and weaknesses of that team. And that's what the, the focus of every debriefing should be. I agree. If, if you can't talk about things that weren't exactly the way you wanted them to play out and then have a relevant discussion about how that could be changed or what could be done differently, you can see why people might get a little frustrated with that whole debriefing process. Well, it also opens up the opportunity for people who may feel perhaps less experienced or, you know, to lack of a better term, lower down on the totem pole mm-hmm. to speak freely um, so that, you know, if you have five people in an event, you're probably going to have five slightly different viewpoints as to what happened, when it happened, et cetera. And you want to get all that out on the table because that's the only way you're going to come up with uh, the best representation uh, of what actually happened. And again, that's how you uh, identify weaknesses and that's how you identify strengths. And then you can develop tactics to prevent the weaknesses and tactics to repeat the strengths. I I so, so hard, wholeheartedly agree. And I thought it was interesting, your uh, points of what to discuss. And so kind of to follow up on that question, Many of the units that I'm seeing have debriefing forms with standard questions like what went well and what didn't go well, what can we do better the next time? In your experience, what questions have been beneficial in assisting teams to get to that, let's in, let's continue to do what's profitable or what's optimal and let's change what's not helpful? You know, I think that those types of questions do have some value, but I would encourage teams to dig deeper and develop a comprehensive understanding of any weaknesses in human or system performance that become manifest during that event. And then also very importantly, craft strategies to avoid those weaknesses in the future. Similarly, any strengths that were displayed should also be discussed and strategies for replicating those strengths be identified. That's how you dig deeper and that's how people will come away from that debriefing with a much better understanding of how to deliver better patient care in the future. Yeah, I I think that debriefing is such an important and rich environment for quality improvement and for team communication, the team learning about each other, that digging down and drilling down to figure out the cause of what happened or what went well is really helpful for teams to really become more cohesive and work better together. So do you have any tips for debriefers at the bedside to kind of get all this accomplished in 10 minutes? Julie, I've been leading debriefings of simulated and real clinical events for more than 25 years now. And I've put together a list of overarching strategies and specific tactics that help teams better understand and improve their performance. Now, let me give you an example. 
the question, what can we do better the next time, can be answered with, we need to respond more quickly. Well, that's not really a helpful response. First, the members of the team need to reach the conclusion that their response time was slow, but they have to do that on their own. You shouldn't have to tell them that the response time was slow. The way to do this is to ask them to objectively time their response. That means actually count the minutes that it took them to respond if you're using video in the debriefing, or at a minimum, at least reach consensus on the timing based on their collective memory. They can then be asked to compare this number with whatever number they believe should be achieved. Next, they need to understand why their response was slow. This could be due to any number of reasons. Let me throw out some hypotheticals. You know, one, current patient care duties precluded an immediate response on the part of the team. Two, the call came at the change of shift and it was unclear who should respond. Three, the call was not directed at the right people. Four, a high ambient noise level in the room obscured the call. Five, those responsible for calling them were delayed in making the call, which begs another round of drill down questions. So you can see from just this one simple example, that there could be a multitude of reasons why an event occurs. Unless you drill down to the underlying causes and thereby reach a comprehensive understanding of the event, you're not going to be able to correct the underlying problem or problems. Finally, the team needs to develop tactics for avoiding slow response times in the future when they're faced with a similar circumstance. One of the strategies I learned from Mike Sterling, my good friend at Johnson Space Center, is to expand the debriefing a bit. And you can do this by discussing not just the specific event that occurred, but also by addressing other similar situations. Asking detailed questions and posing additional hypothetical situations generates a much richer discussion than allowing them to simply say, we need to respond more quickly. One of the tactics we use at CAPE, our training and research center, is a series of four questions that are asked in sequence in order to drill down to the underlying cause of the event. Those four questions are first, what happened or what did you notice at that point in the event? Second, what circumstances led to that? Now, you notice I didn't say, why did you do that? We don't use second person pronouns, for example. Uh, we really want to get at the circumstances rather than try to point out uh, something that someone did or didn't do and in, at least in theory lay blame. We really want to talk about the circumstances that surrounded that event because there are things that can happen in the environment that may or may not be due to the human beings that can influence their performance. Third, what happened to the patient as a result? You know, if you don't get to the point of uh, talking about what happened to the patient, you're really wasting your time in a debriefing. And then finally, what can be done to either facilitate the recurrence of a positive event or prevent the, a negative event from ever happening again? And you know, um, in your article, which I utilize on a regular basis, and the article that I'm talking about is going to be in our reference list for this podcast, and it's found in seminar, Seminars of Perinatology in 2019, so you'll have the full reference in, in the article. There's a, a wonderful graph at, a graph at the end, or a table, not a graph, a table, that goes through a lot of these points that we're talking about that I find incredibly helpful. And I recommend that article on a regular basis to debriefers to um, have a a quick reference to look at before you're debriefing or as you're contemplating how you're going to debrief a particular 
scenario or event. So kind of, again, to follow up, we've talked a little bit about finding out um, what didn't go as well as the team might have liked. And there's a, there are instances where the same issues come up time and time and time again. And it seems that nothing ever gets done about these issues. And I think that is incredibly frustrating as well. Do you have a strategy that you use for following up on issues that you uh, are aware of during the debriefings? Uh, yeah, we do. Um, you know, you're not really achieving the highest return on your investment of time, effort, and money. If you go to all the work to debrief clinical events, and then the only people benefit from that activity are those who are able to attend the debriefing. We recognized a long time ago that we needed a mechanism to disseminate the tactics that we developed to avoid weaknesses and promulgate strengths uh, that we saw during that particular event. And so we formed a program that we call Recess One that consists of the following activities. First, we record our neonatal resuscitations. Second, we screen and edit those videos for monthly formal debriefings. Third, we actually score, objectively score neonatal resuscitations and enter that into a performance database that we keep track of over time. And finally, fourth, we publish a quarterly newsletter for dissemination of our findings and recommendation. Now, that quarterly newsletter uh, does not talk about specific cases, of course, because that's a HIPAA violation. But what we do talk about are the general things that we learn, either to do or not to do, by watching those videos and scoring those videos. Our formal monthly debriefings are augmented with ad hoc debriefings conducted by our teams in labor and delivery in the NICU every day. And they've all been trained in the CAPE debriefing method. So these are live resuscitations. That's correct. Have you had pushback from your staff? You know, it's interesting. We first started recording uh, resuscitations way back, I think it was around 2001, as part of a, a federally funded uh, study. And I would say we, we uh, encountered a lot more resistance to that, although we were able to work through it to the point where I think for that particular study, 99% of the resuscitations for which we sought to record what was going on, everyone approved. Uh, but it did take some work. It took a lot of education. It took a, a number of in-services and meeting with folks to make sure they knew that this wasn't going to be punitive in nature, but rather an effort to help us all elevate our level of performance. And what I've seen over the years is that as people come to our sessions, they may be somewhat defiant at first to even angry, but as they participate and they see what the value that comes from talking about what we do well and what we don't do so well, they become real believers. And some of the same people who either wouldn't show up or sat in the back row with their arms folded glaring at me uh, previously now um, actually are suggesting, hey, I was in this real difficult resuscitation um, I think we should we watch that. Let's critique that. And that's culture change, which is the toughest thing that to occur at any institution and does take time. It's not days or weeks, it's months to years. But you have to start somewhere. And that's actually what you want to get to, is you want to get to the point where the members of your teams are really eagerly wanting to improve their performance and objectively critique their performance uh, so that we can deliver better care to patients. I think that's just a very powerful way to improve performance. And 
once you can get everyone past that, um, you know, oh, I, I did something wrong. I don't want to talk about it with everyone else. And I think it's that's been one of the things that I've learned at Cape uh, in the years that I was there is these things don't happen in a vacuum. A, a team takes care of a patient. So one person just saying, oh, I made this horrible mistake or I caused the team not to perform well, it, it's a team effort. And I, there's so much value that I have gotten out of every single recorded review of a simulation. And I know that it's been echoed to me by everyone that has been participating in video recorded debriefing. So I, I think that's an incredibly powerful strategy to improve performance. You know, Julie, the, um, the relationships that we have with people outside of healthcare have been very helpful to me uh, as we put our training programs together and our quality improvement programs together. And I mentioned Mike Sterling, my buddy down at uh, in Houston at NASA's Johnson Space Center before. Um, one of the things he always says, and of course they have some very high performing individuals there, probably some of the highest performing individuals in the world. But Mike says, you know, their mantra is we can always do it better. And so I think to myself, if they can always do it better, we certainly can always do it better. Well, and I think that's played out. I know particularly with the disappointing news we've gotten lately about the rise in maternal mortality and infant mortality rate in our in our country. So hopefully this type of debriefing can be embraced by more people so the performance can improve. Um, do you have any final thoughts or recommendations for the audience? You know, I think the probably the most important thing I can say is just for people to keep asking each other, how can we take better care of our patients? And then use objective outcome-driven debriefings to help make that happen. I agree. It's all about the patient. Well, thank you for sharing your time and expertise and debriefing with us, Lou. You can find more information about CAPE and the programs CAPE offers at cape.stanford.edu. That's cape.stanford.edu. Edu. And thanks to the audience for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.